With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Oh, one more beer for me. Exile means quality. So savagely. Best beer in all the land. Brewed with a loving hand. From bottle, keg, or can. Exile brewing. E-X-I-L-E. For me. E-X-I-L-E. Let's drink football. Enjoy your The HN Podcast. I am John Miller along with Steve Dace. And let's dive into some questions from Hawkeye Nation throughout a uh, request for your questions on Twitter uh, the night before we record this. And it is Monday, the 27th day of August. And the Iowa Football 2 Deep just came out. We'll probably dive into that just a tad bit here later on. But let's just go, Steve, uh, with some of these questions. I haven't really gone through and um, weeded any out, so we could have some uh, funny accidents along the way. Let's dive in. Um, this comes from Jason Gufka. says he's really worried about replacing three linebackers. Remember Hitchens, Kirksey, and Morris when they left? I guess that was after 2013. And how well that went. Cue the sarcasm. Is that the biggest concern for this year's team? Um. I think I'm a little more concerned about offensive line cohesion early on. I think by the time we get to the end of the season, Iowa's offensive line will round into a solid unit. I think that if they want their best chance to beat Wisconsin in Game 4 uh, or Iowa State even in Game 2, I mean, let's, let's, that's probably the, the better game to focus on is Iowa State in Game 2. Iowa's going to start uh, Mark, uh, Mark Kallenberger uh, at one tackle in the first game because Tristan Wirfs and Alaric Jackson are out. So you got, you know, two new starting tackles, not a lot of experience there. So offensive line cohesion is probably my biggest concern. What about you, Steve? What do you think about the backers? Uh, I agree. I think that the offensive line cohesion is the bigger concern because that's something that just has to work itself out in real time. Um, And for, for Iowa football to be successful, that is a unit that has to excel at a very high level. Like Iowa can find ways around, find ways to win football games if the linebackers are competent rather than excellent. Um, It's very hard for Iowa to find ways to win in its current, uh, in its current paradigm. If the, if the linebackers are excellent, but the offensive line's not, that's, Mm -hmm. that is the, that's the, that's the stone that is the cornerstone of the program. So I think that's that's always where it has to begin uh, in terms of concern. I I am concerned the first month of the year about the linebackers. I think with Iowa State, they're going to put them in space a lot, just the style of offense they play, and uh, I, and you have to be very disciplined because they, you you have to recognize the threat of David Montgomery in the running game, obviously. And, and you can't cheat too much because, you know, Kyle Kemp does have the strongest arm in the world, but he's very accurate on those, <clears throat> on those in-between routes. 
um, you know, on those flag routes, on those slant routes, which become available when linebackers get caught peer, peering into the backfield because they know that um, they they got to get a head start on David Montgomery. So I, I'd be concerned about that. And then when you play Wisconsin a couple weeks after that, you know, it, they're just going to line up with, with five guys. Four of them are probably going to play in the NFL. <clears throat> and, you know, it's not a successful running play for their linemen if they don't get to the second level. And that's that's a game uh, – well, and both of those games – Iowa's defensive front, it's, if it's as good as we think it is, can help to compensate for that. With, with, if they can at least cause, at times, against Wisconsin, a stalemate, for example. They don't have to win. Can they cause stalemates? Mm-hmm. Against the Iowa State, can they bottle Montgomery in by themselves as a front four? Because then it becomes less guesswork for linebackers when they don't feel like, hey, I gotta, it's up to me to stop him here once he get you know once he gets past the point of attack so i think those are things that the defensive front as big of a concern as those are and you know the year you had those three as new starters you didn't have a defensive front like this so i i think the defensive front can compensate for some if not a good a good portion of the issues for the defensive for the linebackers that offensive line is the is the it's it's the heart it's the lifeblood there is no in the Iowa system. There is no compensation for an offensive line that is not executing. That's that's the do or do not position. Uh, agreed. Um, if Iowa, this is comes from uh, Shibby nineteen eighty six. If Iowa goes ten and two or eleven and one in the regular season, will Kirk Ferentz retire? That would be if if he's looking if the Ferentz family plan is for Brian to be the next head coach. And I, and I believe that all involved there would like that uh, on the Ferentz side of it. If they do go 10 and two or 11 and one, considering the talent, I believe that they'll have returning next year, as long as, you know, Nate Stanley doesn't go pro. I mean, I think Noah Fant's going to go pro barring an injury. Um, they'll have, they'll have a better, I think a better team on paper next year than this year might have a better record because of the schedule gets a little tougher that's a really, really good question. I would probably say no, because Kirk's a very young 63, very healthy, very fit, very involved, very engaged. I don't know that he really wants to hang it up. But if you were looking for the perfect opportunity to have peak cover and political capital, if you will, that would be a time to do it. Well, I think without knowing what's going on in Kirk's head, it's impossible to game plan this out. Um, you know, he's not a guy that's going to leap right into television. He doesn't bring that kind of personality to the no. table. So it's really a matter of, does he have something else or that he wants to do with the rest of his life? Does he want to rest? Does he have philanthropic work he wants to do? You know, there's only been when he, when, when he steps on the field against Northern Illinois Saturday, He's going to be only the fourth coach in the Big Ten in the last 75 years to be at the same school 20 years or more. And the other three, pretty good names, Hayden Fry, Woody Hayes, and Bo Schembechler. All right, that, I mean, if you're, in, if, you're in, if you're ever in company with those three names in this part of the country, those, that's the company you want to keep. Okay, so he's already in some rarefied air where that's concerned. Um, you know, a lot of times what happens is these coaches stay a year longer than they should. 
I go back to a chapter that uh, Bo Schembechler wrote about the, the time he spent coaching an all-star game with Bear Bryant late in his career and how Bear Bryant had confided to him that he was tired and wanted to retire. And Bo asked him, well, why don't you? And he said, because too many jobs depend on me. And he ended up staying five more years, retired a year too late. And I think the bear, the bear was dead within a year. All right. If Paterno had retired a year before, how might his legacy be looked at differently? What did he know? When did he know it? Uh, I go to Mac Brown and Will Muschamp when Will Muschamp was the first coach in waiting. And Mac Brown didn't uh, retire when he was supposed to. And Will Muschamp bolted and left for Florida. And the Texas program is still not recovered from that. They've not had a regular season where they've won more than eight games at Texas since they were in the BCS National Championship game in 2009. How about That's that? incredible. That's incredible. Okay. Uh, I go back to um, the year that Michigan got to 11-0 and in number two when we played number one Ohio State. And the worst kept secret in Ann Arbor was if Michigan had beaten USC in that Rose Bowl to go to 12-1, and Lloyd was going to retire and hand it off to his number one offensive assistant in Mike DeBoard. Well, Michigan didn't win. And in fact, the offense was atrocious in the second half. And Lloyd comes back and, you know, the next year they lose to App State. The next year they get housed at home by Oregon. They finish nine and four with the number one overall pick in the NFL draft, the number one all-time passer at quarterback, and the number one all-time rusher all on the same team. They went nine and four. Okay, so a lot of times these guys stay a year too late. I, but the the question that 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 the, the way that he's the questioner, I can see him working, and it makes sense that if it's the Ferentz family plan, as you said, then that would be the max political capital to set the son up for success. We don't know if that's the Ferentz family plan, though, so it's impossible to guess. It is. I mean, this might be the Ferentz family desire. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the Ferentz family plan. Those are two totally different things. Right. Um, If that is the plan, hypothetically speaking, I could also see a scenario where Kirk could turn around and be a line coach for Brian at Iowa. And that I know that that would raise some very challenging dynamics, but I think Kirk is humble enough um, to pull that off. But I'm not predicting that. So let's Here's hope- the easiest way to do this. Fire your candy-ass AD. Who's, all Kirk Ferentz has to do is show up with three Big Ten championship rings at every iClub and say, hey, can you sign on the memo line right there? Okay, make him the damn AD. That's all you need to do. That, and that, that's, that's, been, that's what they did at Wisconsin with Barry Alvarez. It's what they're emulating now at Tennessee with Phil Fulmer where he's the AD and he's the one out making the pitch for the fans and the tickets so that Jeremy Pruitt can just coach the team. That That's the easiest solution. You, you maximize your strengths. You get rid of the candy-ass AD who does nothing but get the school sued, and you put the coach in there that's that's going to raise – that's because Kirk's why. Nick, Kirk Ferentz and his success is why Kinnick Stadium looks the way it looks now compared to when I started doing sports talk radio in 2000. That He's why. He wrote, he's the one, his success wrote all of those checks. Just make him the AD. Yeah, I can, I mean, there's probably other jobs that come to mind that like, I don't know, um, um, Johnny on the spot, um, sucker outer, um, manure spreader, jobs that Kirk would want less than an athletic director's (laughs) job. But athletic directors write up by those. Kirk's made 30, 40 million, if not more. I think the last thing he wants to do is well, ever to this then. And that is at 63, he's right on the edge now. 
right kind of that dick for meal edge of do you want to try your hand at the NFL? And if you have that kind of season, your stock it is an NFL coach has always been high in league circles. You could then then that might be the time Kurt can say I've done everything here I can do and hand it off to Junior and I check that last, you know. Yeah, scratch that back. last itch as he, yeah. um, as he put it a long, long time ago, and go there and get your butt shot off, and it doesn't matter. Again, using Kirk's verbiage from back somewhere in the two thousands, um, that, that would be that, that was the offensive coordinator. Right, right. That that would be the one. That would be that would be the one. Um, where is the this comes from Hawkheart IA where is the fork in the road for the season what game helps determine how the season goes perceived well we talked about recently the Iowa State game in week 2 has been a pretty pretty good bellwether game for Iowa you know when you when you look at the 10 years that Kirk has had victories over Iowa State he's 10 and 9 and in those 10 years, nine of those 10 years, Iowa has won at least eight games. And in five of those 10 years, Iowa has won double-digit games. I think week two is a pretty good one. Maybe you want to come back and say, well, that's the first week for their tackles. Week two and week four, Iowa State and Wisconsin. After week, we, we will know the trajectory of this season after those games. I, I completely agree. And... You win both of those games, and um, I think it's very possible they could. You win both of those games, and at the very least, unless something happens to Nate Stanley, you're going into the Nebraska game Thanksgiving weekend with uh, you're playing for uh, potentially a chance to be in the Big Ten championship game. Yeah, you win both those. Yeah, you win both those games. You're probably ranked somewhere around 15 as well. Yeah, you, you lose them both, or you lose one or the other, and it probably depends on which one you lose. Like if you lose Wisconsin and beat Iowa State, um, well, I don't think it matters. I mean, we we we've seen Iowa look terrible one week and pull huge upsets. I mean, I remember doing this podcast three years ago, and I was nervous as hell about Michigan going to Iowa City, and you thought it was going to be named the score Saturday, basically, and I was like, no, I don't, I don't believe that. You know, because they looked terrible the week before against Penn State. We've we have just we have seen on a week to week basis, which is so odd. When you look at how docile the 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 persona of the coach is, you know, one of the things watching their camp tour over the weekend, watching all those guys like it, it, the guys, it's the same Iowa practice we've seen every year since we've come here since 2007. Nothing changes. And so when you look at all of that constancy to have a team that is so prone to extremes one week to another one season to another within that constancy um yeah I'll, so i'll just defer to you and the answer you gave i mean i, I can't explain the 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 week to week scratch your head i will say this it's though it's weird I, when you when you do the same thing every single week it is weird to be so up and down it's it's odd but it happens it is that 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 uh, wisconsin game is going to be insane environment and i think the same way for iowa state i think i think most Iowa fans I know this year are certainly taking the Cyclones seriously as they should. Next comes from X-Ray Ann. Um, which Paulson twin is older and who's the most dominant? Don't know who's the who's older. Don't know who's the most dominant. But looking at the uh, press, looking at the depth chart, first depth chart of the season, Landon Paulson is number two left guard, and Levi Paulson is number two at right guard. Cole Banwert is the starter at right guard. And Dalton Ferguson's a starter at right tackle. He's a, a senior from Solon. So neither Paulson cracking it 
just yet. Um, bigger concern, this comes from uh, Adam Schaefer, bigger concern offensive line or linebackers. We addressed that. It seems like that is those are the two constants, though, for sure. Um, this other, I don't want to go there. From Chris Bryant at Detroit Hawkeye on Twitter. Aside from Nate Stanley, who is the player Iowa can least afford to lose? I think he hits on the the, the right one first. We just published something this morning at Hawkeye Nation uh, where myself, Rob Howe, Dave Schwartz, and Sean, we basically, we did 10 different questions. One of these questions was who was the most indispensable, and to me it was Nate Stanley by a mile. The, the drop-off between the drop off between him and the next nearest guy is bigger than anywhere else. Yes, I realize that Noah Fant is a first-team AP All-American at tight end, and frankly, you probably have to go back to Marv Cook in 1988 since I always had a first-team preseason All-American at tight end, as many great tight ends as they've had if Marv was even a first-teamer in 88, and I'm guessing that he was preseason. Um, but I think TJ Hawkinson, behind Noah Fant, is an all-Big Ten caliber tight end. So the drop-off between those two is not as big as Stanley to Peyton Mansell. So I guess you don't want to lose Fant, though, because of the attention that he draws. Um, I think Anthony Nelson probably would be right there. You don't want to lose him because he is your most elite pass rusher on a defense that could potentially put a lot of uh, pain on quarterback. Scott Docterman, uh, he uh, and Mark Morehouse did a podcast recently, the On Iowa podcast. Scott threw this statistic out. When Iowa gets at least 30 sacks in a the season, they have ended up ranked in the top 10 every year. Wow. And this lineup they have this year on the defensive line, I think they could push for 30. So I'll go Anthony Nelson. Okay. I think um, the reason why you want to pick Nelson, even though that's a unit I'm very high on that I think has some of the best depth they've had under Ference, because he is one guy. You know, We think Epinesa can be that kind of guy, but Anthony Nelson is one guy that has shown he can come off the edge and disrupt when Iowa wants to run its base defense, which is 97% of the time. So I'm okay with that. But yeah, I think, I I think, you know, what's funny is I could make a case that the two, in fact, if I'm going to do the silent scene right now, I'm going to give you the rest of the big 10. Okay. The rest of all the players in this conference on either side of the ball, I'm going to give you three names, Brian Lewerke, Shea Patterson, and Nathan Stanley. Those are the three most important players in this league. And I get, I take those three and I give you the field in terms of who's the most likely to be that who's who they're them not performing, them being injured and, and gone for long stretches of time. Those three guys have the most impact. I think of any of the other players in this conference on either side of the ball, which, which are you taking? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And with regards to Nate Stanley, he's got a, um, a redshirt freshman at left tackle and a senior at right tackle who's never started a game in week one with a pretty good pass rusher on the other side. Hand off and run the ball a lot week one <laughs> or, or roll that pocket out. Roll that pocket out. Kids? I mean, Remember when they tried to emulate Raiders of the Lost Ark? You had Tales of the Gold Monkey. Remember that show? Oh, Blue love Blue that Blue show. Tales of the Gold Monkey was awesome. Do you remember Bring It Back awesome. Alive was the CBS version of that? Do you remember that? I did not see that. Okay. Uh, for some odd reason, I hadn't thought about that show in like 30 years. 
I just thought of Tales of the Gold Monkey the other day. Did you? The theme song to that is still still pretty dope, man. But when when I heard the way you're talking about that week one game, I don't know why. Just made me think of that show, Bring Him Back Alive. Just get in and get out. Just get in and get out, man. I don't care if it's two nothing. Just get that game over with and get the hell out of Dodge. That's kind of yes. what I heard you say right there. Yeah, yeah. Nick Chapin from Twitter. Um, what are your likely best and worst case scenarios for Iowa season this year? I think ten and two, um, probably a best case. I could, if I squinted really, really hard, maybe eleven and one, but ten and two. Uh, going to Indianapolis, that ten and two would of course have to include a win over Wisconsin. Um, worst case scenario, seven and five. I think seven and five is probably my worst, or six and six if Nate, Nate Stanley gets hurt early on in the season. That would be the, my extremes. I won't quantify it. I'll narrative because I'll narrative it. But worst case scenario, Nathan Stanley's out for an extended amount of time. Best case scenario, Indianapolis. That's the narrative that I would cast. That's how I, I'd, I'd frame it that way, more so than an actual record. Based on this comes from Aaron Kilberg. Based on a manageable schedule, plenty of talent returning at key positions. What needs to happen this year for John and Steve to deem it a success? I mean, I've got them eight and four, and eight and four is just one rung up almost from what I think is the low case. I, I just I'm concerned about offensive line and defensive line. To me, if they hit nine and three, I'm going to feel really good about that. Um, is eight and four not a success? I think eight and four is kind of the, the the bar this year of what they have to have. Anything worse than that is is a, a significant disappointment. So I just think nine and three or better would be a a great success. But obviously, you got to see how those play out. I mean, if you're nine and three and you beat Wisconsin and Penn State, but you lose to Purdue, Iowa State, and Nebraska, it's going to feel a little pyrrhic. Yeah, I think to answer this, I got to ask you a question first, if you don't mind. Okay. And, you know, two years ago, the big emphasis was we got to get some trophies in that case. We'd lost all the trophy games here, right? That was the big emphasis narrative going into that, that, that offseason. Mm-hmm. Then, the, then last year's offseason was you got to win a bowl game. The senior class never won a bowl game, right? That, that was sort of that narrative going into that year. Like, I think for me to answer this question, I need to kind of know – what the fan base narrative is you know like i can tell you right now you know from a michigan fan perspective harbaugh had that those elite top four classes in 2017 or 2016 and 2017 and so there's this sense and with a lot of those guys are likely only going to be here for three years and so there's a sense that this year and next year is that window among michigan fans one of these two years has to be that time period where he proves we are on the same field with Ohio State, et cetera. Otherwise, maybe we're just a develop we're, we're a developmental program that can get up every few years, uh, but we're kind of Iowa with a bigger stadium. That's kind of what Michigan fans are thinking about the next two years. I'm wondering, based on what I just heard you say a few minutes ago, are do you guys as fans, John, do you view this year as a setup for next year? Do you view this year as the year? Because I, I got to kind of know – what that what what that yeah. narrative is before I can decide whether what's the successful season or not. That's a really good question, and I'm on Twitter a lot. I don't know that I can tell you what the narrative is. I I don't know that there's a great number of fans out there thinking this year is a setup for next year. I, I haven't seen that. Um, I I I almost you know personally, and this isn't what the fans are. I I think I think you got to get back to. Um, 
you got to get back to respectable and competitive against Wisconsin. I mean, they are the bully, and you've got Nebraska coming up on the outside pole. Maybe not this year, but they're coming too. You got to get back and reestablish your identity as the bullies of the Big Ten. I think that's that's a good way to look at it because that goes to how I answered the previous question about best case, worst case. Is I I didn't look at record as much as narrative, and so I think I'll do that here as well. Narrative: you have to show physically you can stand up with Wisconsin. They aren't going to come into your place and and pile drive you. And I think by the at the end of the year, if if, for, if you're an Iowa fan, it's a successful season. If you showed you can stand up to Wisconsin and you're not in danger in one season of being surpassed by Nebraska. Maybe that's how I would frame it. Yeah, right. Um, from Jeffrey the Greek, like that. Assume that Northern Illinois is putting eight to nine in the box and doing an effective job of stopping the run. How long would you stick with the running game if you're Brian Ferentz? They'll stick with the running game the whole game. Because go back to the Jordan Kanzeri senior year game at Nebraska. What would that have been? 2015, I think. Iowa's first half production on the ground was not that great. Then they come out in the third quarter, and they keep running the same thing. Stretch, stretch, short side, stretch, short side, stretch, short side. He breaks off two for long touchdowns, and the game's over. That's what Iowa does. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. They're going to keep running those at you. And every single time, you're going to have to execute to perfection to stop them, even with eight or nine in the box. And especially with eight or nine in the box, if you get one safety that sneaks down too far into the into the wash, that's just one one wiggle away from breaking it long. I think that Iowa will run a great deal of, of boot play action in the Northern Illinois game because I'm expecting a full full on set of uh, of running plays. But remember, and we've talked about this, you're going to have Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson on the field, I bet, for at least 75% of the snaps in this game. Both of them will be there on the field at the same time. That means you have amazing, um, oh, what's, what's the term? Formational flexibility. Personnel package flexibility out of that two tight ends on the field at the same time. They can they can go power and run it. And if you put eight in the box, that's five linemen and that's two tight ends. I like Iowa's chances in that. Or you make it look like you're going to go strong and you're going to run. And both those guys take off running vert seam routes. And they have mismatches when they do that. There is a ton of flexibility that Brian Ferentz has this year because of those two players right there. And they the fact that they are mismatches, especially Fant, every time he gets in the field. So they won't abandon the run, but I think you'll see in, in a game when teams want to stack the box with you and you get to keep two tight ends in the field at all times because they can block as well as receive, you have a lot more options than you've ever had before. And I think that's exactly why... I. If they're going to try, I believe, and keep this as vanilla on offense. As For sure. And because of that game next week. You know, we'll get into this more on the Bigger Ten podcast, but one of the things Chuck Long said when he was at Iowa practice with the BTN uh, bus tour last week is we saw more tight ends split out wide, particularly Noah Fant in the slot, than he can ever remember at Iowa. And they do that for a couple of reasons. One, you know, they don't always have the strongest wide receiver grouping. And two, the amount of attention he will draw in the slot because of what everybody knows who he is and his size and what he brings to the table athletically. You hope that opens up some opportunities more on the outside as defense is more focused on him. And if I'm, if I'm Iowa, I kind of have the perspective that John has. I'm, I am not, I'm not showing any of that stuff to Iowa state 
unless it is 21-17 in the fourth quarter, six minutes left, and I'm behind. I'm not showing any of that unless I absolutely have to. I'm not going to put any of that stuff on film for Iowa State to look at because Iowa State's coaches aren't dumb. They can watch the BTN bus tour stuff too and probably have. Okay, so they they know how to expect they know to expect Noah Fant in the slot. What they don't know though is what's the route tree he's going to run there. Right. They don't know what's he going to do once he's there. Is he primarily a decoy? Is there a formation bias where when Iowa, if Iowa goes with two tights and then Fant in the slot, they tend to run. You know, that's what they won't know. All right. And if I'm Iowa, I don't want to put any of that on film unless I got to to put a drive together to win the Northern Northern Illinois game. Barring that, man, it's going to be, uh, you know, stretch right, stretch left, stretch white, right, stretch left quarterback waggle we're running that 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 you know that typical iowa six plays because we have three and we just flip sides left to right i'm running that all day saturday if i can get away with that you put noah fant in the slot that puts a lot of pressure on your defense right away what are you going to do are you going to walk a backer out and have a, have a, a cover two type look with the linebacker under and a safety over. And if you do, you've just right. occupied two defenders for one offensive player. And that's when you bring a tight end or a receiver from the backside, run him on a post route because that safety is going to be occupying Fant, likely running a, an out route over to the right side. You create a mismatch there. Or if you leave the linebacker in and you bring the safety up and give it a man, uh, uh, you know, a man look. Then you've got Noah Fant one on one with the safety, and that's the yep. first that's the first read that Nate Stan, Nate Stanley comes up pre snap. He looks at what I just talked about. He takes the snap and he looks instantly to see what the backer do, what the safety do, because that dictates everywhere else where he's going to go with the ball. I I just I really like the options, the optionality they have at these two tight end sets, and, and that's the stuff fans don't recognize. Where Iowa State may go through camp and they decide, you know. We are more the most comfortable defensive formation we have is when, you know, we have uh, one safety on high or two safeties on high. And the way Iowa, the way they deploy Fant when he's in the slot determine could determine for Iowa State whether one of those alignments works or whether it doesn't. That's an unfavorable matchup somewhere else. You don't want to give any of that stuff away because you want to try and steal a touchdown early in the game against Iowa State mm-hmm. that's before they can make that adjustment before you put it on film. And I think that's the sort of things that fans, you know, fans overrate when they say, well, we didn't show, every fan base will say after this week, we didn't show any of the opponent nothing. Well, you did. Okay, you showed them some tendencies. But, but there is some truth to that, actually, just not as much or in the areas a lot of times that the fan who, who, who claims he's an offensive coordinator because he can guess run or pass in the stands they're, they're, that he doesn't that's the part of the game that he doesn't understand and i think that you know i go back to something that i've talked about in our podcast before you know i don't know is there a better defensive mind in the last 30 years of college football than nick saban he certainly would be near the top of the list and he'll tell you the hardest for him the thing he hated scheming against the post if you gave him a choice between an all-american receiver and an all-american tight end he'd rather go up against the all-american receiver every single time because it's easier to scheme to take him out um, the heart the, it, it, on any college defense. Go back and watch Alabama and Auburn last year when Alabama had to start two true freshmen who, albeit, were five star recruits, but they had to start two true freshmen against Auburn and uh, on Johnson and Jared Stidham. They got destroyed in space. The hardest weakness of any college defense, no matter how talented it is, 
is the more you can force their linebackers into space, the less that probably means they are imposing their will on you. Mm -hmm. From Tony J. Neighbor, many complain about Kirk's contract and the fact that it translates to seven to eight win seasons. Is it a valid argument to say that Iowa going eight and four may just cost more to achieve there than eight and four at another school due to intangibles such as location, tradition, etc.? I've always contended that. I've always felt that's the case, that it's harder to succeed consistently at Iowa because there are no oceans. Uh, the the geographic the socio demographics are not in its favor as it relates to state population you've got another fbs power five school also in your state um so yeah i think that it's harder to do at iowa what kirk ferentz has done there and what hayden fry did there than it would be somewhere else so i do think you have to pay a little more yeah and i think that in the end and i this was a position i switched to when you and i were still doing daily radio as i got older you know start having kids and you recognize how expensive things are i finally just took the position for me as a as an analyst it's not unless unless it's a moral failure or a criminal legal failure uh it's really not my place as an analyst to tell non-paying to 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 tell paying fans what whether they should be satisfied with a coach's uh one loss record or not the people who pay the bills get to decide that and I think one thing that I have definitely seen changed uh, since I left daily sports talk radio in our state is a more realistic expectation level from the Iowa fan base. And I think that probably has to do with some self-awareness. When you take take Ohio State situation with the Jim Chessel scandal aside, since Ferentz was first giving that, given that contract several years ago, Michigan's on its third coach. Is Nebraska on its third or fourth coach? Um, you, you know, it's it's hard. You're, I think everybody has shown. Everybody. I mean, Ohio State went from twelve and one to six and seven. The year Trestle got canned. I think every we we are now in an era where basically, and and what that means at Ohio State is different than what it means at Iowa, obviously. But every program in the country now, I mean, the the era where, um, you know, a, a USC could just throw their helmets out and with a with Ted Toldner as their coach and go to the Rose Bowl will never is gone. There's too much parity. Everybody's invested way too much money. You look at these state of the art facilities at we, I mean, two years. Last year, we were laughing at Purdue because they didn't have an X-ray machine in the visitors locker room. They now have a state of the art facility. Northwestern's a small private school of 6,000 students. They may have the best facility, indoor facility in this league. So when you look at uh, Clemson's got, you know, uh, mini, mini golf, when you look at all the investments all these programs have made pretty much comprehensively, you simply, every, every program now is one bad head coaching hire away from several seasons of unmet expectations amongst its fans. And what that margin for error means at Iowa compared to, say, Iowa State or Iowa compared to, say, Ohio State may be different, but the dynamic is the same. You are one coaching hire misfire away. And I also wonder if Iowa fans the last few years took a look at maybe the the hiring acumen of the AD and decided, you know, 8-4 and four ain't too bad if you're going to throw in a 12-0 and 0 every few years, you know? So I, I kind of think there's just been more self-awareness amongst 
That's why we don't talk as much about the jihadic wing and things of that nature, because I think a lot of Iowa fans have looked at what's transpired in this league over the last 10 years since Kirk was originally given that deal and realized, could it be better? You bet. Could it be much worse? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craig Salo, thanks for your question. We talked about linebacker play. Garrett Hubler, uh, will Geno Stone be a starter by the end of the year without an injury occurring? That would mean supplanting Jake Gervas. I don't think so. I think Gervas is a senior. He's got some goodwill in the bank. He's got some experience. I think that Gervas will be the guy. Um, Buddy Lee, over under sacks for Iowa 2018, 28 and a half. Steve, what are you taking? 28 and a half over under? Yep. And you're playing 12 over. games. I'm going yeah. over. Telling you that, I mean, we're coming back to that Dockerman point of the years that Iowa's had at least 30 sacks. They finished top 10 in the nation in each of those years. I mean, I, I, we're going to get into this more in the Bigger 10 podcast, but you have three opponents on your schedule this year that Jerry DiNardo, former All American offensive lineman at Notre Dame, walked out of their camp and said their offensive line ain't where it needs to be. Okay. <laughs> So when you add the uh, the adjusted BTN uh, criticism uh, slight, yes. that is that is damning. That is that's, damning. That's 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 problematic. Yes, it is. Yeah. Seabus um, Cole. Um, whose fans are more delusional, Nebraska or Ohio State? Boy, there's different levels of delusion. Uh, I think Nebraska's fans just, you know, they, they just want to get back to where they were, and, and some are realizing that they're probably never going back to the Osborne uh, Devaney level of excellence because there's few programs in the country that can do that uh, as long as that took place. Um, and I think they have every right to be excited about Scott Frost, who's named a true freshman starting quarterback uh, as his starter, the first time in Nebraska history. Steve, I don't know what your take is on the Ohio State fan situation from you know the, the recent Urban Meyer fiasco. I can only base it what I see on Twitter. I mean, and that's usually the jihadic wing of every fan base. I, do you have a feel if Ohio, if, if if a decent portion of the Ohio State fan base is is embarrassed and disgusted with what came down? Um, no, I don't believe they are. I don't I don't believe they are. And you know, got a long history with their fan base, and like their fan base is like every fan base. There's nut jobs, really bad nut jobs, reasonable people. They just have fewer of that other camp than any other fan base does. And you get look no further than what transpired last Thursday night for proof of that, or last Wednesday night for proof of that. And it, let me start with Nebraska. Nebraska always had this dichotomy of Nebraska fans away from Lincoln, like the ones we grew up around here locally or lived with in Iowa, were beyond obnoxious, right? Okay? And yet when you would go – when you talk to opposing coaches and players about – what fan base did they appreciate the most? What what fan base, when you were in their stadium, always came up every time? Nebraska. Everybody talked about, you know, the year Eric Bieniemy went in there on like one leg in a driving rainstorm and ran for 200 yards, and Nebraska fans gave him a standing ovation. So there's always been this dualism with Nebraska fans, where the further you got away from Lincoln, the more douchey the out-of-state fans would the further you got away from Lincoln the douchier they got and I think that douchier um, group has certainly been humbled over the last 15 years Um, and now Nebraska fans are almost endearing again because kind of all we hear from now are the Lincoln people 
that are, you know, so excited about Scott Frost coming back. Um, if he's successful there, that 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 douchier element from outside of Lincoln, the, the, the bandwagon jumpers, they will return, of course. But for now, you know, Nebraska fans are almost kind of endearing again. At Ohio State, you know, it's funny. For every reason I thought he would be fired, they documented in that report. And then they threw in things we didn't even know about, mm-hmm. like destroying text messages, which I thought at the time, I, that has to be criminal. And now the Associated Press has a story yesterday saying, yeah, that's actually a criminal activity. You can't do that. Okay. Um, what happened yesterday, what happened with Ohio State is their, their board of trustees and president, the academics, stood in that room with the athletic people on that board for 12 hours and got a stalemate. And the reality is because he's 47 and three in the big 10, he can do whatever he wants. And in wrecking and the compromise, you can see the way it worked out. The compromise was, okay, you can stay. We're going to put every breadcrumb you can imagine in that report. And then we're going to Pontius pilot this thing and wash our hands of it. And then we'll see, we'll let the authorities or more investigated uh, media, you know, we'll kind of leave them a trail of tears, if you will, of breadcrumbs. And, you know, we'll see what this looks like six to eight months because we'd like to fire your ass, but our crazy fans won't let us. And I think that's exactly what happened last week in Columbus. That report, when you read it, you know, and, and everyone and I listen to a ton of national shows across the country. And it, I've, I've been on C-SPAN a few times in my other job. Every Ohio State caller I have heard in the last month and a half has sounded like the absolute dumbest people that call in the C-SPAN every time. Like there hasn't been one person with any perspective. Like I'm like the, the 15 shows I listen to, they've all been bad, all. And I think if, if for our audience, even if you think that, hey, what was Urban Meyer, what was he supposed to do? If you haven't read the report, you need to read the report. And there's a reason why they didn't put the report out until after the press conference, because as bad as that press conference was without the report, if the media had the stuff that Ohio State documented in that report in their hands at that time, that press conference would have been a bloodletting, even far worse than what we saw. And the report's not hard to read. It's 23 pages. There's a lot of blank spaces, giant font. You'll read it in 10 minutes, I promise. And the stuff they itemize in there, the stuff they say, you, you, will, you will be incredulous at what, was, at what they documented. And if you didn't think he should have been fired before, before, once you read that report, you'll come away thinking, how the hell does he have a job? And the reason he has a job is because those regents, those trustees, those academics at the, on the Ohio State campus, they got to go shopping. They got to they live in Columbus, too. There's a reason Kirk Herbstreet left. There's a reason he moved away. And when guy whose dad played at Ohio State, he started at Ohio State. They literally made his life a living hell if he didn't pick him to win every single game. And so he moved to Nashville to get the hell out of there. So I think it. I think just as with what's the most important player at, at Iowa, it's Nathan Stanley, and then it's Space Butter, Space Butter, Space Bar, whoever's after that. There's Who are the craziest fans in our league? There's Ohio State, and then there's Space Butter, Space Butter, Space Bar, and then I don't really – it doesn't matter who's next. Okay. Um, let's, there's one here getting down to the bottom here advantage or disadvantage this comes from Eric Reeder advantage or disadvantage to Iowa facing Wisconsin early in the season this year I think it's a disadvantage this year if Iowa had a well-oiled machine along the offensive line returning 
Um, if if James Daniels had returned and was playing center, and by game four Tristan Wirfs and Alaric Jackson were back, I might be of a different opinion. But because of the uncertainty along the offensive line, and because of how many fits Wisconsin's defense has given Iowa, along with others, and I, I would just rather see Iowa face them later in the year because I think Wisconsin's offense is going to hit the ground running from week one. So later in the year would be my pick. Um, I would have told you before the suspensions it didn't matter. And I um, I actually had in my, you know, I'm not changing it because the dude code, but when I, you know, finished my football preview in late June, I had Iowa 9-3 and three with a win over Wisconsin. That being this year's big win, big upset. Uh the suspensions on the offensive line and the cohesive aspect of it, uh, I'm much more concerned about that game being early in the year than I was before that. Okay, so you agree? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Dude, code, dude code absolutely applies to the day's preseason college football preview, but not so much to the day's NCAA bracket. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, that doesn't mean when we get to that game week, um, that doesn't mean I don't have to pick based on because there's injuries and things of that nature when we get to game week it may not be my pick it still may be i don't know but i'm not going to change my preseason prediction from nine and three because of the dude code okay good deal so i'll look forward to just one bracket from you again this year right john are we doing this again that'll do it for this installment of the hn podcast for steve i'm john we'll talk to you soon